What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Hey, dear listeners, it's Laurel and Derek here. Before we get into our discussion tonight, I just wanted to say a couple of words. We're obviously recording and releasing this in the wake of the horrible, tragic shooting in Las Vegas and the ongoing disaster area that is Puerto Rico. Uh, we, we, Our hearts go out to all of the victims and all of the people who are still dealing with the aftermaths of these horrible tragedies. And we just hope that if you're feeling at a loss for what to do like we are, um, check out the Red Cross. They are always doing good work in disaster areas. Uh, if you can give, give uh, to to any of these causes. Um, there are several reputable organizations also providing relief to Puerto Rico and the people there who are still without power, without ability to connect with their loved ones. Um, we really encourage you to check out those relief efforts, and whatever you can give, go ahead and give. Uh, and and in that vein as well, if you are outraged at what is happening in Las Vegas, if you are outraged at what happened last year at Pulse, if you've been outraged for a long time, uh, just make sure you let your Congress people know that you're not going to take it anymore. Right on. And speaking of Societies on the precipice of total and full collapse and disaster. I think that's a great segue into where we are going tonight as a topic. Woof. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tonight, guys, what we're going to be talking about is the uh, one of my favorite film franchises, The Hunger Games. Yeah. And just to qualify it, I haven't read all of the books, so uh, this is not a book-to-movie side-by-side comparison. I'm more just a fan of the movies. No offense to the book readers, just haven't gotten to it. It's on my my list of things to do. Right, same here. So many of the things we're going to be referencing are going to be uh, strictly from the movies themselves. So big Hunger Games fans out there, please forgive us our ignorances and share your thoughts with us. If you think that there's something that the movies really missed that we uh, we call out tonight, or if you think there's something the movies did better than the books, we would love to hear it and talk about it on the show. Yeah, and can I just say, when I saw the first Hunger Games movie, I was freaking hooked. I was, too. I I didn't expect to be. Yeah, I mean, I kind of just went because it was a big movie event and figured, wow, might as well check it out. Jennifer Lawrence is a pretty awesome, you know, actor. And the previews looked interesting and intriguing, and I did not expect to love the movie. And I loved the first Hunger Games movie. Yeah, I thought it was pretty excellent, and I kind of saw it just because I wanted to get away. It was one of those summers where I was just seeing lots of movies because I 
Sounds like every summer for me. Yeah, because it's Philly and it's really hot and gross and you want to get inside and some air conditioning and whatever. There's this, And I saw it two or three times in the theater because I really enjoyed it. Um, And I I think I like the second one, uh, if not better than as much as the first one. I think they're really successful, excellent movies. Definitely. The second Hunger Hunger Games, I was just as, but not quite as much, if I'm being honest, into as the first. Mm Mm-hmm. And then got to the epic conclusion of the Mockingjay 1 and 2. And that was where it sort of fell apart for me. Yeah. Um, I won't say that those movies are devoid of any merit or or redemption, but uh, they weren't my favorite, for sure, of the franchise. And they felt pretty joyless to me. Yes. Which was intentional on their parts, but not something I have a whole lot of... Um, love for. Well, yeah, and I kind of want to talk about what Hunger Games as a narrative was saying about uh, history in particular. Yeah. I have a general thought that when we're seeing Hunger Games work out as, as a narrative and when we see all four movies, which is a lot to cover in one podcast, but when we see it work out, I think there are some very powerful statements about how and what drives human events. Yeah. You know, and I think the first two movies are very much about the crossroads of, uh, you know, entertaining the masses compared to um, our most basic and worst instincts. Yeah. And I think it it draws upon the well of Roman and Greco, Greco, pardon me, not Greco, Greek and Roman classics, I should say. Oh, so for sure. It takes this sort of we're going to draw upon these ancient societies, repaint them in in Pan Am, this dystopia America, and kind of show this dark underbelly when we mix modern, you know, reality TV show tactics to gladiatorial combat yeah. in dystopia America. And in many ways, what made the first two movies successful thematically to me was that they were allegorical. Right. They were they were saying something about us as a society right now. And there were things that we can just enjoy on surface value because they're fun and good movies. And we've talked about allegory and movie in the past, that it's a successful technique because of the layers. And there are lots of layers in the first movie that you can enjoy them on. You can just enjoy the fact that the main character is a badass archer teenage girl. And that's just awesome. You know, yeah. you can enjoy it just for that, or you can enjoy the fact that they have characters named Caesar and uh, they use sort of Roman style flags and Cato and they they draw upon this well of, of Greek and Roman classics to sort of draw a parallel between the failed societies of the past and the failed society of the present. And in that you get the sense that there is this sustaining engine driving human affairs there is the vicious autocratic dictator. There's the complicit and complacent populace that watches the Hunger Games. Then there are those that get caught up into the momentum of the games, the people at the Capitol, and all of them are just part of this weld-oiled machine. Well, in the last two movies, when they start to try to break that machine, is where, A, all allegory leaves in the Mockingjay Part 1 and 2, it ceases being an allegory to me about where we are at now. It starts to be about the events on the ground and how revolutions are made. 
And I think the last two movies make a clear argument, and I'm going to call it the great person argument. You know, they say that what shapes human events are great people that rise to the top. Now, there's some, if I may give some historical context to what the great person argument is, came about around the 1800s when people started really thinking about history in a more modern philosophical context. They're like, what is the science of history, the philosophy of history, and what makes history ultimately happen? Who shapes human events? One idea that came to prominence was the great person theory. This was a theory that all of history is shaped by great men. It's actually called the great man theory. Yeah, movers because, and shakers. Yeah, they were all a bunch of sexists. So like, you know, they have Caesar Augustus, they have Napoleon, you have George Washington. These great people rose to prominence. And because of that, they were able to shape events. Adolf Hitler could be considered part of that. The great man is often thought of as a historical philosophy of heroes, but not necessarily. It can be of great people that do terrible things. Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking of uh, in the first Harry Potter movie with John Hurt as Ollivander talking about he who must not be named and saying, oh, because you know who did great things? Terrible. Yes. But, but great. great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you, you get my drift. And... The argument I think that's made, what causes Pan Am to rebel? What causes the revolution to be successful? And what causes the society afterwards to be a success or a failure all hinges on these few individuals. You know, these few individuals, Snow, the Mockingjay, Katniss, um, and... Uh, Coin. Coin, I totally was blanking on her name. Yeah. And Coin. So these three individuals and a few, of, and then their sort of support are the ultimate drivers of all of the events of Pan Am. And I think what made that not as successful compared to the first two movies, the first two movies was about this engine that was built, right? And about how this engine self-perpetuated oppression. And there was a reinforcement to this self-perpetuated you know, repression and, and oppression, pardon me. And we looked at that and at least I looked at that and said, oh my God, I'm part of that system too, you know, and I am absolutely problematic. So when they tried to change that to rebelling against it, what's lost are the people, what's lost are their suffering. And you can see that in that so much of the Mockingjay, the way it's shot is about one or two people having really close conversations like where the camera just focuses on their face juxtaposed to action. It's two people talking action, two people talking action. Well, Hey, that's a really boring way to do a movie. Just flat out, just calling it out. I'm not like that kind of guy that's going to critique the way a movie shot or edited. Cause I really don't know what I'm talking about in that regard compared to some, but to me, it's just a boring way to, to watch a movie. And then B it lost the whole idea that yeah, Pan Am was unjust and people were right to rebel against it. And instead it said, yeah, it's really just about these really important people and what they do and how they interact. And in that, it just has a tidal wave where it just washed all other potential causes, you know, and the most pressing symbol, spoiler wall, going to now go into spoilers, spoiler wall if you haven't seen it, the very end, we learn that 
The leader of the rebellion is just a, another evil military dictator and was manipulating everyone for her own power. And what do we see? We see Katniss kill her and okay, military dictatorship over. All you have to do is just kill the military dictator. And now suddenly everyone's free. Well, that never worked in Rome. Right? That never actually worked in history. And it just annoys me. Ooh. Big, big intro. Yeah. Dense intro. Sorry, I word vomited. <laughs> I'm going to have some beer. Yeah. So um, I, I want to back up a little bit. I'm, I, I'm excited about that intro because I think it's really interesting to um, examine the real world implications of, uh, of not only dystopian fiction, but young adult fiction, because we have to take into account that these are our stories that are written for young people. Um, and they're in no way uh, sugar-coated for, uh, for a younger audience. They're not about children. Uh, Coming-of-age figures heavily in the, the main characters' uh, story arcs, but it's, it's not about children. It's about war, you know, kind of from day one, even when it's just, uh, you know, about one uh, reality TV battle royale. Um, so it's interesting to frame that, how, how we talk to young people who are the leaders of tomorrow, for lack of better words, how we talk to the leaders of tomorrow about society, how we talk to them about government, how we talk to them about politics, and how to get what you want, how to change the world and make it better for the people who come after you. Uh, and I think that's a, an interesting way to get into this uh, this discussion we're going to have tonight. I do want to back up a little bit and talk about some of the some of the main figures that we encounter here in the Hunger Games. Because if you're arguing arguing that uh, that the Hunger Games takes a great person theory of the way events play out in history, which I think is a super valid argument, and I agree with a lot of the points that you make. In um, particular, in the in the Mockingjay yes, movie. In particular, in Mockingjay, but we do have to read this whole. Uh, this whole franchise as an arc that that sort of snowballs into its its greatest mass, right? Uh, but I think it's important to focus on some of the uh, the main figures that we encounter in this story. Uh, the monumental protagonist of this story is Katniss Everdeen. Uh, she is the fierce, uh, fearless, totally badass and potty mouthed, uh, braided archer of District Twelve who volunteers as tribute in uh, in The Hunger Games, in the first novel and the first movie. And if I may add, the best part of the whole thing is Jennifer Lawrence and Kat, as Katniss Everdeen. She is really remarkable. And you can see her chops from, from the first movie, too, that she, she really does layer some complex shit in that character. And she, she really grows as someone who is, uh, is clearly the... Uh, the leader in her family and a leader in her community, uh, she grows from from that into being a really complex, uh, really, uh, yeah, I'd say tortured and and troubled uh, leader of a of a rebellion who has to deal with with moral ambiguities the likes of which most of us don't see. Um, but just to call out some of the like amazingness in Suzanne Collins' writing, uh, Katniss uh, is a the, the name Katniss comes from a water plant. Um, 
that has a botanical, or the scientific name of Sagittaria. Sagittarius, of course, being the uh, zodiac sign of the, the uh, centaur archer, sometimes, uh, sometimes also referred to as Chiron, the centaur archer. Uh, she reminds us so much of Artemis or Diana running through the woods um, as this sort of free-spirited, um, you know, tomboyish female who shoots arrows and hunts and is sort of this goddess of the hunt. Um, this, is, this is the first glimpse that we see of this world, and then this world kind of blossoms open into a heavily, heavily Roman-inspired um, society. So the, the capital, of course, being a place that uh, openly embraces all the lavish indulgence and decadence of uh, what we think of when we think of the Roman Empire. And then we also see the, the just rampant inequality of the districts and the, uh, the exploitation of the small folk <laughs> of, the, of the districts. Um, and the iconography is so Roman as well. And so right away we are placed in this world where we can see, we can see the good and we can see the really festering evil of that kind of inequality. And it's, it's so easy to see right off the bat because we think of Rome. And it's hard not to think of us today when we think of the fall of Rome. Um, but Katniss, she's our, she's our hero. You know, one of the things about Hunger Games that is done really well is the intentionality in naming. Yeah. And I think that is a good way to juxtapose against one of the main themes, which is the power of appearance and the power of media to manipulate yeah. people into appearance. So the Hunger Games itself is a gigantic lie. You know, it is designed to intimidate and show the power of the capital, but also to subdue and entertain and almost give back uh, a little semblance of time. Like one of the, the basic thematic elements of the Hunger Games is if you're starving and you want more food, you can put your child's name to be drawn into the Hunger Games more. So the more you put your child's name in, the more food the capital gives you. Yeah. So the more you're willing to gamble the life of your child, the more you yourself can eat. That's only possible in a society that has no food. Right. Right. So you already know the society has a short supply of food and it's manipulating that and it's creating that engine. You know, and the thing is, terms of yeah i mean i guess we could look at all the individual characters to me what's more interesting is that how the power of appearance stops becoming a major theme in the mockingjay movies and it was like one of the major themes from the first two how do you subdue people how do you get people on your side how do you manipulate people and how do you mix in the right amount of hope and fear in which in the first movie speaking of snow he gives a little, you know, speech to the game master and says, you know, why is there a winner? Why should someone win? Why don't we just round up two people from every district and just kill them to remind them of our power? You know, why do we have a winner? And the game master is completely dumbfounded. And he's just like, uh, I, I don't know why, why, like, he's just like, uh, it's a game. I thought there has to be a winner. And Snow says, it's hope. You have to give Hope in small dosage as a powerful person, it's okay. But if you give too much of it, it can become problematic. 
And what Katniss as a character starts to represent is hope. You know, and in the first two movies, especially the second movie, is her journey from being just part of the person on the train, as Hamish says, wake up, sister, this train never ends, to someone that can inspire hope. Yeah, she becomes a symbol. And then Mockingjay Part 1, they the resistance, the, you know, District 13, wants to exploit that and go right into that. And Katniss kind of reluctantly goes along. By the third movie, or sorry, pardon me, the fourth movie, that's no longer really a present theme. You know, we don't get how this revolution is being marketed and manipulated till the very end in which coin slaughters civilians and in her hopes to turn the peacemakers. It's so fucking convoluted and stupid. So at the very end of the movie, there's a whole bunch of civilians that are retreating to the presidential mansion and it looks like there's supplies being dropped, but it turns out they're bombs. And that was like the last draw to break the military complex that Snow had. He's bombing his own children, which it turned out it was Coin pretending to be Snow bombing the children. And they mentioned, oh, by the way, it all played live on TV. You know, and I feel like you take three movies and build a theme, you kind of have to continue it in the fourth, right? Sure. Uh, yeah, it's manipulation of the masses, though, until until the very end. And I will say, if we're gonna if we're gonna carve out something that is um, that is consistent, then I would say fundamentally the uh, the Hunger Games trilogy or the the quat- quatrilogy of um, quatrilogy <laughs> new term the quatrilogy of the hunger games of, of the movies at least uh fundamentally preaches that history is cyclical um and does it i so i the, i don't know if i agree with that okay yeah i because at the it it, it the ending makes no sense because if you're right that history is c- cyclical then when then Katniss would have killed Snow at the end and not killed Coin. Instead, she kills Coin, and apparently that means everyone is now free. Sure. I, I, I don't think that that is... I think it's left pretty um, uh, purposefully ambiguous in the end. And we know when we come into this story in the, in the, first, um, in the first moments of The Hunger Games, we know that we are you know, pretty deep into a society that is uh, is being punished for its previous uprisings. And the Hunger Games are this form of continued punishment. Um, that they rose up against the Capitol once, were put down, now they endure this. They rise up against the Capitol again in Mockingjay Parts 1 and 2. And then the new government that's instituted, or the interim government that's instituted, wants there to be another Hunger Games that punishes the people of the Capitol. And we are led to believe that a uh, a free election follows and that everything is suddenly on the up and up and the society's been reinstated and a democratic government has been put in place um, and that, you know, people are going to pretty much live happily ever after despite the fact that Katniss and Peeta have pretty severe PTSD and are now raising children in District 12. I, you know, I, I waver back and forth in believing that that's a pretty big, uh, you know, leap for me to make and a pretty big oversight on the part of writers. But I also wonder if it's left pretty purposefully 
um, unresolved to remind us that this is probably not over. And, and if we follow the swell of history, you know, we, we study history because we want to try and break cycles of oppression. We want to break cycles of violence. But, you know, look at, look at everything that happens in our country today. And we, we wonder, you know, this happened in Rome or this happened in this society, this happened in this society. Why haven't we learned from our past? Yeah, I don't know if I agree. So I think it's making the decidedly opposite argument that history is cyclical. I think, and the great man theory is not a, a, a theory that argues for the cyclicalness of history. It says that great individuals will shape events, not that human events are trapped in a paradigm that repeats. You know, And I think they clearly show Katniss as the person who broke any chance of it being cyclical I think it, and one thing that is also very clear to me is that they had a free and fair election and the right person became the president. And I think they've tried to show that if you remove this one great person whose obstacle or whose uh, designs are to be an obstacle to self-determinative democracy, you will have self-determinative democracy. And I think my problem with that from a narrative standpoint is that it was an unearned argument, you know, that if you've spent all of this time saying that there is a machine that needs to be placated, that machine doesn't really depend upon one individual. Then it becomes more cyclical. And I think they focus at the very end, the very last scene with just Peter and Katniss as the epilogue. But I think we can mark the end of the Panamian events as when we see that there is a president and the president is someone that we have seen to be a good and noble and capable leader, you know, and making a very powerful statement that all we have to do is eliminate the dictators. It's almost like if you could only go back in time and if you could just kill Hitler, then none of the racism and oppression that happened would have happened. And I think from my personal perspective is that there are more reasons than a great person rising that make these things, these human events happen. In other words, I don't think we can put all of Nazi Germany squarely on Hitler's shoulders. Of course not. Yeah. You know, as much as he has, uh, uh, has a lot to do in shaping those events, you know, in the same way that we can't put all of the events of the American revolution solely on George Washington's shoulders. I think it is more complex than that. And I think there are more things happening, governing human events than we give credence to. And what bothers me about the hunger games is they kind of got that in the first two movies and kind of forgot it in the last two. Yeah. And here's where, here's where I think, I think things kind of, um, kind of went wrong too. I, I subscribe a lot to your, as, I mean, of course, we haven't read the books, so we can't really speak to Colin's intent necessarily, even though she is a, a screenwriter yeah. um, on the on the films. But the um, the films do posit that, you know, if you put a good person in the presidency of this society, they're going to be able to fix the problems. Um, and it does so without really explaining how. And I get that you don't want to spend the last 15 minutes of a movie outlining a new democratic government and talking about all of the the pieces that are going to go into the new constitution. 
it's easier to wrap it up with a really good shot, somebody being sworn in. But, um, but I think that, that a lot of nuance is thrown out in those last couple of movies. But here's where I think, um, here's where I think the opportunity is missed, uh, on the part of everyone who went into creating this story. Uh, the first two movies, and even Mockingjay Part 1, do sow the seeds of a potentially really successful revolution. Uh, we, we have Katniss and Peeta, who are the first ones to really stand up against the Capitol in a way that's significant and in a way that reaches the masses. And that's by you know, volunteering to commit suicide by eating the poison berries at the very end of the first Hunger Games that they participate in, in order to really stick it to the capital, to rob them of that victor that creates the, uh, the spark of hope that Snow claims he needs in order to control the people. Right. That's the first real act of defiance. Uh, but even before then, you know, Katniss places flowers on Rue's body you know, Katniss forms a, a true alliance with Rue and influences the people of Rue's district to, uh, to support her. And we see her in Catching Fire. They, they do the little symbol of District 12 where they kiss their fingers and put them in the air. And that's an act of pretty powerful dissent on their parts. She's sowing the seeds of this support and this, uh, this outward distaste and outward disdain for the capital. And what comes next is this realization on the, on the parts of the, of the districts that the capital doesn't exist without them. The capital relies on them for supplies. The capital relies on them for food, for uh, material production. The, the idea that Katniss creates, uh, which is that if we all pretty much shut down, uh, the capital would shut down too, is a really powerful one. If this... If, if, if this movement begins with the masses, then this movement is extremely successful. It disrupts, right? This is the, the same kind of, uh, this is the same kind of success or the same kind of uh, strategy that led the solidarity movement in Poland to, uh, to create some great successes there. There were, uh, this is the same kind of, uh, of disruption that led to the Velvet Revolution in, uh, in Czechoslovakia that dismantled the communist government there. This is the same kind of strategy that brought the Berlin Wall down, right? And they throw it all out in the last two movies. And they throw it all out in the last two movies because we see this revolution that began as nonviolent but extremely disruptive and, and powerful in a way that, that messes with... I think one of the most like deeply, deeply held and least acknowledged things in human nature, and that's habit, that's convenience. You know, the reason I think so many Americans don't um, don't think about their carbon emissions or don't uh, try to improve their their waste on this earth is because it's inconvenient to recycle or it's inconvenient to. Uh, you know, to put solar panels on your roof or it's inconvenient to get a, a more uh, a vehicle that has better fuel economy. With a comprehensive nonviolent strategy that's disruptive to people's daily routines uh, I, and a, a really good plan for how to instate a democratic government, uh, I think this revolution would have been a 
very different thing and maybe wouldn't have made for such good actionable TV or, uh, or movies, but I think would have been a really interesting example. I think what Collins tries to do instead is to show us, and I take kind of a pessimistic view of, of how this all ends, but to show us what a revolution looks like when it goes really, really bad. I think she is absolutely against, I think, she, I think as a writer, I think she's writing through Katniss, she is morally against the violence and the, um, the lack of scruple in this revolution, but I think that her critique of it is, is diminished by the way it plays out. You're giving it way more credit than I think it deserves. You know, is I, at any point in time in the Mockingjay where there's about to be a moral argument um, introduced, in particular, the last movie does this poorly because... Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's not strong enough. No, but you're saying that, if I understand you correctly, that there's an intention to say that Katniss is, you know disgusted by the violence of the revolution and she wants to draw a moral line and she really can't. And that's a big conflict in her, which shows the the shortcomings of the revolution itself. Do I understand that argument? Yeah. Well, my point is at any point in time, they start down the road of having that, which they start in the second Mockingjay movie where they juxtapose uh, Katniss and, uh, you know, pretty boy. Um, what's his name? Gail. Gail. So they, they juxtapose them together where he is comfortable saying the ends justify the means as long as we win this rebellion when they're discussing the strategy of what to do with the arms depot um, that's trapped around a series of mountains in District 2. And the whole point of that is, hey, they have a whole war council. They're like, there's tons of weapons in there. If we can get in there, we get these weapons. If we get these weapons, A, the capital doesn't have them, B, we have them, C, we now have more weapons than them, D, we win the war. But they can't because it's a heavily fortified position. So there are way too much defensive fortifications for their men and their their supplies to go and penetrate and get them. Well, Gail says, well, why don't we just bury them alive? If we bury them alive, um, no one has the weapons, but that's better than the capital. And Katniss is appalled by this. You know, that the idea, because there's civilians in there <clears throat> and Katniss is not okay with it. And they start, the two of them, a debate, one on one end saying, this is war, ends justify the means. The other on the other end saying, hey, we have to uh, have a higher moral authority. Otherwise, this revolution doesn't mean anything. And the problem is, is that they start that debate and then it's absent for the rest of the movie and then at the very, very, very end, it comes back. And they don't do anything to kind of flesh that theme out more. So my problem is that this movie could have been about the debate, especially the last movie about, you know, what does it take to win a war and what lengths are you willing to go? You know, I can think of a lot of narratives that do this well, especially in the nerd world. Think of Doctor Who. It's a constant question that the doctor is wrestling with. He's dealing with the fact that he saw all ends will justify the means to end the time war. And that took a part of his soul, even though he can live forever, he'll never truly be alive again because of that constant theme. That's like really complex and really interesting. Well, they started in the Mockingjay part two, abandon it 
to rather focus on Peta and Katniss's romance and then them trying to survive the war in the capital and then bring it back at the end and Katniss is horrified that, you know, Gabe, Gabe? Gail. Gail. Gail actually had something to do with the murdering of all the civilians that ultimately brought down Snow. And my, my point is that sort of hodgepodge thematically to me says that, well, I don't know what your intention was. Was your intention to make this movie a romance amongst most horrible situations where Peta and Katniss actually do finally fall in love? Or was this about, you know, the moral arguments? And if it's about all of them, well, why not interlace them? Why, like, have it so thematically chopped where you spent most of it about surviving in the capital and fighting war and how Peta and Katniss are actually falling in love, which apparently they do. They actually fall in love. And, and which was fake the entire time up until this last movie. So, you know, I feel like they could have done exactly what you were talking about. They flirted with it, but at every turn, they kind of turned away from it yeah. instead of really fleshing it out. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying, is that the the opportunity was there to make a, a positive statement on how um, how revolutions and how history could play out. And instead, what we got was a weak critique of how it has played out. Uh, okay. Instead, we got a, 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 a sort of a bloodbath and something that makes really exciting, uh, you know, action sequences. We got something that gets our, our blood pumping and gets us, you know, rooting for the protagonist against all odds. We got the uh, sort of uh, explosive version of the Hunger Games and the Quarter Quell. Uh, but with real world stakes that are beyond anything we can possibly imagine, and we got the weakest possible critique of um, of, of the the real moral gray areas that are being uh, played with here. Um, it, it makes me wonder if we, you know, if I would have preferred to have watched a slightly slower and more uh, more methodical uh, response to this. If if I would have had a better time watching a nonviolent revolution play out on screen rather than a big action flick, is well, what I mean, I'm, I'm asking. It couldn't have been any slower because you know those two movies are both very slow from a pacing standpoint. So I would hope that it couldn't be slower. And look, I get it. Uh, you know, violence sells in movies. So I'm not actually arguing for it to be less violent. And for me, as a fan. You know, because I, I get that action sells, you know, and I, I don't necessarily know if I would like it being about a, a you know, a non-peaceful protest that ultimately topples this military autocracy. My point is that the, you know, the the choices that are made when you, you have, you know, four hours of movie and you have themes that you've been developing, the choices that you make, you know, try making them consistent. Yeah, agreed. You know, so much exposition to action, exposition to action that you can watch until it just gets boring. Like, here's a scene about PETA and Katniss and how much, you know, how fucked up they are, but how much they love each other. Then their fight for survival. Then there's another scene with that. Then their fight for survival. I think just formulaically, like, it's just bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think the, the big question that I'm asking is... Um, you know, if this 
is no longer allegory, if this is more um, either entertainment or instruction, what am I supposed to take away from this story? Um, especially because these are books and these are movies that are formulated for young adults. Um, and that's to kind of reframe that question I asked earlier. What are we teaching our children? And I'm not here to be like, oh, we're showing our children violence and so they're going to become violent um, because I'm not someone who believes that people can't compartmentalize like video games and the real world. Um, but it makes me wonder today, you know, what does Hunger Games say about how I'm supposed to take on the world around me? Yeah, the world would just be better if all of the Donald Trumps, Vladimir Putins, and Kim Jong-uns were gone. Right. And then we'd all live in peace and prosperity. That's yeah. its ultimate point. Yeah, which is just extremely, extremely flawed. Um, and that's why I kind of lament the fact that there were the seeds of this um, this really powerful grassroots movement that really were abandoned in the final chapters of of this narrative. Uh, yeah, Can I, I give a, I an example of a movie that does it perfectly? Yeah. Who is a completely and totally violent and like horrifically violent movie, but it's one movie. It's about a revolution. It's about the power of media and how the governments use media to oppress and how the revolution can use media to make people more awake, awoke, awaken, awoken. I don't know. Woke. Woke, whatever. We can wake people up to the oppression and then ultimately is about the toppling of the regime. Mm -hmm. V for Vendetta. Mm. V for Vendetta does this masterfully. And it does this while like having a love story interwoven in it. You know, so V for Vendetta is able to take all of these beats and put it into one cohesive narrative that is tight and it fits and it works. It has romance, it has violence, it has suspense, and it has one powerful person realizing, and the ultimate lesson of V for Vendetta, V dies before the revolution is complete because he says the world tomorrow will not be the world I'm a part of. Yeah, because he fundamentally recognizes that revolutions are not about individuals. Yes, it's not about the great man. Right. It's about actually whatever may, and he doesn't know what'll happen. You know, because he admits he's not God. He says that, you know, like, and he doesn't know if it's going to work. He says there's no certainty, only opportunity. But, mm-hmm. you know, it happens and it works exactly as he played the entire revolution out. He uses media several times to manipulate people, whether that's when he takes over the actual TV station, whether he uh, sends people V for Vendetta masks, and he helps unite and incite a revolution and at no point does it feel um, fake at no point does it feel like it undercuts itself you know and it's about and ultimately it's about the beauty of the world and unleashing art as a way to like topple oppression because V speaks in Shakespeare and he collects artwork and he plays classical music yeah and it's this whole culture yeah culture over a, a government that is uh, fascist and and built on censorship and right yeah it for many like ways the conservative party in v for vendetta's dystopia um england is very much like snow's brutal military autocracy in pan am 
They're very similar in the, the way that those leaders have and hold power with fear and terror and oppression and use the media to manipulate and lie and control the way people think, have a surveillance state, you know, except when it comes to toppling it, V for Vendetta, I think, got all of it, those pieces correctly and balanced them. Whereas in The Mockingjay, in those movies, it really starts to unravel to where like re-watching the, the Mockingjay part two for like the third or fourth time, like there's a good like, you know, hour of that movie you can just skip through. Yeah. That you can just not watch. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that you're bringing up V for Vendetta. I didn't even think about it in, you know, trying to think of comparisons in this episode. It's a, it's a great boomerang because I think you're right. It does have a very successful take on, uh, on the contemporary revolution. Um, the, the, while I was thinking about this, the closest uh, movie I could think of was Rogue One and then the ensuing, of course, uh, original Star Wars trilogy because it plays with a lot of the same themes of um, and the same moral questions of do the ends justify the means in a revolution where you're trying to overthrow uh, you know, a regime that is objectively more evil than anything you might do in the name of the rebellion. And I think in the end, Rogue One comes down pretty much on the side of the ends do justify the means if you're trying to overthrow someone more evil than you. I think it flirts with those questions and, uh, you know, the people experience that inner torture, but I think in the end it says, hey, it's okay to, like, do some really fucked up shit in order to save the world, right? Interesting thought. Um, wow, very interesting thought. Yeah, and that's a bit of a boomerang, too. Yeah. And it's like, I don't... I don't necessarily personally agree with that statement, but that movie, I think, makes that statement relatively clearly. And the, the, what we're talking about tonight is a story that does not make that statement. And that, I feel, is almost more dangerous when, when impressionable minds are reading it. Well, I, I can say this. With V for Vendetta, V for Vendetta, V himself makes a clear argument of why do events happen? And he says... Everything's been predetermined by God. There are no accidents. History's already been written. All we can do is play our part, and that part means that England should be free. Mm. Right? Makes a clear argument. Rogue One makes another clear argument, too, about revolution. I don't know if it's the ends justify the means. That's an interesting one, but I'd say its clearest argument, and you might be right about that, is that uh, you need hope. Yeah. Hope is the main driver and catalyst for change. And I think I think maybe it does make that argument in one way and but the counter argument to that and I don't know if this is correct either um with Rogue One is that um that character Cassian is a murderer and he is a despicable person but does it for the rebellion so he has a good reason so we like him. Right. But as he comes to to learn believe in gin and believe in hope, he's able to make the ultimate sacrifice that he so cavalierly will just thrust on anyone. Yeah. So I think his journey is one that's like, it's not really about me and it's not really about doing these despicable things. It's about finally having the opportunity to redeem myself with a good thing. Yeah. Uh, I think it's definitely worth further exploration. I think it's, it's great significant question. that those two characters and all the characters really who are part of that rebellion do g- 
give their lives for the greater good, and we never hear about them. Obviously, it's a prequel, but we never heard about these characters in uh, the original trilogy because in the end, they were part of a much bigger thing, and they, they weren't just great individuals. And while I think it is important to hold up our heroes and to recognize the great leaders of our past and recognize the great leader, leaders of our present, I think it is... Uh, it's a flaw in storytelling, and it is a flaw in uh, in humanity. It's a flaw in history to look at the events of the world and say that is as a result of this one person or you know these two people who who truly changed the world. I think we have to reframe our our view and remember that it's about all of us. I totally agree. I don't think the great man theory in history should be completely stricken and thrown out. You know, I think there are sometimes amazing individuals that can really radically shape human events. Yeah, if you look a, a few episodes back at the episode we did on Christ and uh, Caesar, you cannot discount the, you know, the centuries of impact those two individuals have had on every in- individual since. Yeah. And Go on, sorry. I, no, no worries. I was going to say Steve Jobs is one. Yeah. Who's, who put his will into the world and forced his vision onto it and changed it. And uh, the world went kicking and screaming and eventually like, okay, you're right, Steve Jobs. We all do need iPhones. Yeah. And um, so I think that absolutely has some credence worthy to be considered sh- and shouldn't be u- ultimately discarded. But I also think it's, one theory that comes filtered from men of a particular time looking to find a way to justify their already like heroic, um, you know, so you say Caesar, I mean, be a little more concrete and less vague. We know Caesar shaped the world because Caesar literally had an entire imperial um, intellectual complex designed to write his exploits. And that's how we know about them. He wrote some of them. Others have survived through other people that have written them. And we don't know about the other individuals and not as much. So because of that, it's easy to say Caesar was the most influential of all Romans. To a certain degree, that's true. And I would agree with that. But we don't truly, really know how influential Caesar was. Was he really this amazing genius who bent Rome to his will? Or was he a general that took a few risks that just happily like paid off for him? And because of that, he got to then write the history of Rome in his image. We don't really know the answers to these questions because, you know, the one thing that's true is the Roman Republic had failed and Caesar knew it. And Caesar was one of the few men alive who realized the Roman Republic had failed. It needed to be ruled by an emperor. You know, and he did see that while others didn't. And we look at where this fits in the Hunger Games narrative. I don't think the movies know what argument they're making. Yeah. I don't think they know what are we really saying, where the first two movies definitely made some clear arguments and clear allegorical arguments. You mentioned about class discrepancy. You mentioned about disrupting convenience We've talked about how they've utilized media, how they utilized fear and hope in the balance. 
made some really clear arguments. The problem with where that, that franchise went is it stopped making arguments. And I think there are more, like I've kind of bashed these movies. There's more problems. They're not edited right. They're not fun. You know, like yeah. you don't enjoy watching them. You feel like you're at, you're doing work when you're watching them. It's like, is that really how you want to feel watching the hunger games? Yeah. Watching it's not a Kubrick movie. Series, yeah. It's not David Lynch where you feel like, <laughs> man, I've re- it's not game of Thrones. Like where you got to really pay attention and, and like really put some effort into what you're watching. You're like hunger games should be consumable, you know? And like, you can't consume something that's consumable. There's some major technical structural problems but even then, those pale in comparison to me, man, if this movie, The Mockingjay, had a real good point that I could walk away from, I would have walked away thinking, like, they nailed it. Yeah. And I, and I think your question is, what do we take away from this? What do we take away from this? You know, we know what the character Katniss is made of. Here's another thing that bothers me about it. Just another total side ch- tangent. In no scenario that I can think of does the face of the revolution uh, not also be the actual leader of the revolution in that Katniss is kind of put into this manipulative web where she's supposed to be the propaganda wing of the revolution. And at first, that's kind of clever. When you first see that, that's kind of neat. Wow, that's not how that happens. You know, the people that are the propaganda leaders of the revolution that the people rally behind, they're usually the person also leading that revolution. Like, right. Super concrete. You expect to be the, uh, the democratic leader in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Concrete example, George Washington, after the battle of Trenton, um, in late in the winter of 1776 and then into 1777 became the face of the American revolution because he a was the leader militarily became the face of it. Any time the continental Congress wanted to replace him, which was many times because they were frustrated with him. They couldn't because shit, he's the face of the revolution. How do we fire the hero of Trenton? We can't do that. The whole war effort will just collapse. You know, similarly, they never let Katniss really become the leader. And that's a major fucking limitation of this character who is being built up to two movies prior to being the leader of the revolution fails to ever become that. And like, that's a major thematic letdown when you're like, wait a minute, isn't she supposed to be the one leading against snow and shaping this new world? Turns out, no, she's not supposed to be that at all, which was a major, just like, way to shortchange this character's development. Yeah, we end up in a place where we wish she had more agency than she did. We wish she was Harry Potter in the last Harry Potter book, you know, actually out there finding Horcruxes and destroying them and then leading the Battle of Hogwarts. That's what we want her to be. She doesn't get to be that. What I was going to say is that, yeah, they take her hero's journey and they truncate it. Yeah. And on one hand, that can be read as innovation. On another hand, that can be read as like, Hey, she never really becomes the character she was growing to be, you know, this entire time. I think there's a, there's an interesting thing. I, I was doing a little bit of reading uh, and just background information on uh, the stories today while preparing for this. And of, of course we didn't read the books, but I did find one thing that was left out of the movies, but 
was a, apparently a really uh, pivotal part of the books, and that's kind of the backstory of the Mockingjay itself, the bird, uh, which was a crossbreed of the traditional mockingbird and uh, a kind of mutt bird genetically engineered by the capital that were called Jabberjays. And this was a kind of an accidental mating. These mutt birds, these Jabberjays, were spies to uh, try and uh, figure out who was leading this uh, early uprising against the capital. And they bred with mockingbirds and created the Mockingjay. And Snow refers to it, to it as a, a thing that should never have existed. And therefore Katniss is a girl who should never have existed. She's bred out of the... Uh, out of both the attempt to quell the masses by the capital and the attempt to rally the masses by the rebellion. She is this thing caught between two worlds. And we see this so much throughout the narrative. She's caught between the image of herself uh, trying to survive the Hunger Games, trying to put on a good face and pretend to be in love with this PETA guy just so that she can get sponsors and make it through the Hunger Games. She's torn between that and her family. She's torn between her outer image and her devotion to changing this world. Uh, she is something that we haven't, we haven't really seen before. She's kind of a new thing. And so I do commend uh, you know, the, the risks that are taken with this character at every turn because she is... She's a different kind of protagonist, and especially she's a really admirable female protagonist, which I'm always about. She shows us some things we don't see. She shows us a woman uh, really in the thick of war. She shows us a woman who is dealing with, uh, with the guilt of war and of killing uh, and also trying to put on a face for the outer world. She shows us some pretty severe mental illness that we have to watch her struggle through, which I think is fascinating to see on screen. I just, uh, I, I agree with a lot of the things that you've said about the flaws with the way that this franchise wraps up. And uh, I wish, I wish for more for this character. Totally agree with everything you just said. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, I think it's a damn shame, you know, let Katniss lead the revolution. She can lead my revolution any day. You know, instead of having her just become the propaganda wing and then she has to do this weird complex plot where she escapes the propaganda wing only to, I don't it's just, it's just bad. And she deserves better. It is. Shall we move to the game? Let's play a game. Do your thing, Laurel. Yeah. So, dear listeners, every week here on the Midnight Myth Podcast, as you know, we like to play a little game to lighten the mood if we get a little heavy sometimes and have some fun with the characters we've been talking about. And we would love for you to play along at home. So if you have a response to this, please, please, please tweet us at the Midnight Myth on the Twitters, on the Mockingjay Twitters. Um, visit us on Facebook, search the Midnight Myth Podcast, or visit us on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. We have a contact form there. We also definitely encourage you guys to reach out with uh, to us if you have any feedback, if you have questions, if you have comments, uh, anything that you want us to do, any topics you want us to cover. We love hearing from you every time we hear from you. It just gives us a little, you know, pep in our step. So please reach out if, uh, if you have anything you'd like to share. I'm going to throw this out there. So we're in October now. Every Sunday this October, I will be attending rewatches and lectures on Batman the Animated Series 
here in Philadelphia in Moore College on October the, I want to say, 22nd. Let me look at my calendar. October 22nd, I will be the keynote, one of two keynote speakers um, about Batman the Animated Series. I know we have a lot of Batman fans. And for those of you here in Philadelphia, if you want to come out, meet me and listen to my lecture, come. It'd be cool. Yeah, these are really awesome series. They rewatch a couple episodes of Batman the Animated Series, and then they talk about uh, like some of the things we talk about here on the podcast. They talk about the artistic value. They talk about the historical implications, all kinds of stuff. It's like a live midnight myth, basically, and there's a lot of great speakers. So I definitely encourage you to come out if you're in the Philly area, and we'll get more information out on our social media about it. And there may be beer. Anyway, so this game, kind of like our Boomerangarang bonus episode, we put... Uh, names in hats. Well, three names in a hat, three names in a box to be exact. In those, I'm going to pick a character from Laurel's. Laurel's going to pick a character from mine. And then we have to make an argument as to why this character is going to win the Hunger Games in Head to Head. Cool. You uh, pick first. All right. I forget which one I'm supposed to draw from. You pick from the hat. No, you pick from the box. Let's find out. Okay. I'm going to pick my character too. Oh, yes. I've got Tyrion Lannister. Okay, so my character to win the Hunger Games is Willy Wonka. Yes. I'll go first. Sure. Okay. Citizens of the capital, citizens of the districts, happy Hunger Games. May the odds be ever in your favor. I am arguing today... For the one, the only, the tiny little lion of Lannister, Tyrion Lannister. Not only is Tyrion a decorated war general, the uh, leader of of the defense of King's Landing in the decorated battle. Decorated war general. Shut up! Uh, in the in the battle of of Blackwater Bay, the siege on King's Landing, he led them to a resounding victory against the forces of Stannis Baratheon and bullshit. Excuse me. Whoa. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He's also Hand of the Queen. He provides incredible advice to our dear, dear Daenerys Targaryen. He is experienced with, uh, with dragons and other, um, other kinds of, of mythical beasts. He has seen it all. He's seen all kinds of terrain. He's been to the Wall. He has been to the North. He's lived in King's Landing, he's lived in Dragonstone, in Slaver's Bay, he's diplomatic, and he's likable. People like him. He's got everything you need uh, to be a victor in the Hunger Games. He can fight, he's small, and he can hide in like tiny little places. He's good with survival because he's lived in all kinds of different places and advised people to great esteem. He's even been in the little gladiator pit in uh, Marine or, or whatever, in that one season, I don't remember. Um, You're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he he can handle it. He even got away from the stone men in old Valyria. Like this guy has been through it all, and I think that people would support him to win. The end. Yeah, Tyrion has no chance in the Hunger Games. Even if I didn't pull Willy Wonka, um, just flat out, Tyrion is when Tyrion has hand to hand combat. Every time that he's in that scenario. He either is almost killed, pays or hires someone to do the hand-to-hand combat for him, or he gets horribly maimed. Um, Yeah, so he has no chance. So let's just go out and say Tyrion will lose the Hunger Games. 
Regardless, now let's talk about the virtues of Willy Wonka, the enslaver of the Oompa Loompas, a builder of essentially his own Hunger Game theme park in the Chocolate Factory, where he invites children in for his own version of the Hunger Games, um, a guy that understands the value of uh, you know, networking, which is a huge part of a victor, considering that he is a successful businessman. He's a recluse. And, and Willy Wonka is just better in every way. Has, has Willy Wonka ever had to fight anybody? Yes, he has to fight the demons of children all the time and fights them well, which is essential to a victor in the Hunger Games. That's all he does is fight the demons of children. That's what his whole purpose is. I see. You you know I'm right. That's what he does. No. Absolutely. Uh, dear listeners, I'm going to ask you all to come to my aid and just remind this fool that the arguments that I have made are significantly beyond anything he could say. About no way. Your arguments are bad. Obviously. Whoa. Obviously, just Tyrion bad. Lannister wins the Hunger Games. Um, and someone is going to be sleeping on the couch tonight. Until next time, be kind. Be kind. 